This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith, and today I am joined by my host, Caleb Castro, as we continue our discussion of the Covenant of Works. Let's dive in. So now in speaking of pre-fall and post-fall matters, maybe we should talk a little bit here about some things of the law. What is different and what is the same in regards to the law and man's requirement to obey before the fall and after the fall, Andrew? Here again, I think it's helpful to even being URC, Dutch reform guys as we are, I think the Westminster Confession gives us some really helpful teachings and categories that help us to understand this. So you can look, for instance, at Westminster chapter 4, paragraph 2. So this is the section of the Westminster dealing with creation. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male, and female with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. So again, you have this distinction between the creation and the covenant because the law is part of creation. That's a part of being created good. That's a part of being created in the image of God is to have the law, this moral law, written in their hearts. I say that it's the moral law because we can look ahead to Westminster Confession chapter 19. So if you look over at chapter 19, you see now God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works. Now here we have to make a distinction. As we've seen elsewhere in the Westminster Confession and elsewhere in our teaching, God gives Adam a law by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Now, this is not the only sense in which the law is there. Remember, the law is there in creation. It's there in chapter 4. And then as Shorter Catechism 12 does, it separates creation and covenant. So there is the law in creation, but then there's also the law as applied, the law as used as part of this covenant. But then note in paragraph 2, this law after the fall continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. The first four commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six our duty to man. And then three, beside this law, commonly called moral, so here we have the connection. This law in creation is the moral law God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church underage, ceremonial laws, and then it also goes on to talk about civil laws. 
the laws of the Mosaic Covenant that were temporary, that were limited to that administration. So all of this to say, law is related to the Covenant of Works. It does not exclusively belong to the Covenant of Works. It was part of the creation of man in God's image. It was written on his heart. It forms part of the covenant of works in the sense that in terms of fulfilling his covenant, Adam had to do all of the law as well as not eat the tree. But it remains. It's eternal. It's part of the image of God. And thus it remains even after the covenant of works is broken. Yeah, and that's what you get there in Westminster 19.5 as well. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. So there's an eternal binding, an eternal requirement of adherence to the moral law, even for the justified. And not merely that, but when it says forever, the moral law is eternal in the sense that it actually remains even in the new heavens and new earth. It is forever for the justified fulfilled in Christ in Christ fulfilling its demands and obligations and warranting, meriting the uh, fulfillment of the law. But it is eternal because the moral law has its basis in God's holiness, in God's righteousness. The source of morality is God himself. He is eternally moral, eternally holy. And it's that that is in part given in man with the image of God. I say in part in that the image of God is not merely a judicial thing. It's not merely a judicial substance. But we have, by virtue of this image of God, a sense and understanding of the natural law and what is required of us. And this is why even when Adam breaks the covenant and the failure to meet the conditions of obedience for blessedness and eternal life is now ended, there is still the obligation to fulfill the original terms set out to him. He still had to obey fulfillment of the moral law. In other words, to love God and to love his neighbor as the summary of it. It should be noted, as you say, this term natural law, you did mention it once, and moral law. We're not talking about different things. If you follow the logic of the Westminster Confession, Those laws are one and the same. It is the moral law that man is created with the knowledge of, that's impressed on his heart, and that he knows even without it being revealed to him. That same law that is, we would see, summarized in the Ten Commandments, or the two great commandments, to love God and love neighbor. Yeah, this has continued on as an obligation. I mean, in other words, we could ask it in the form of a question. After the fall, are all men still accountable to God? We, of course, have to answer yes. God is creator and God has made man good and in his image. But, you know, from the disobedience of our parents, our nature is poisoned. And therefore, we are all conceived and born in sin. Adam serving as a representative for all of his descendants, those who he would multiply and fulfill the earth with, then are no longer able to be born merely in a relationship of innocence with the terms of the covenant of works over them, but now in a state of wickedness with the terms of the covenant of works over us. So the covenant of works remains in the sense that it condemns us, 
but there's no longer any hope for life under the covenant of works. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's because God has revealed himself in this way with Adam through special revelation, through his word and act, and his laying out the requirements uh, to Adam that all men are under the effects of the curse of death, you know, with the breaking of the original covenant. If it was merely a covenant that was instituted by the act of creation in nature or the putting in of the image of God, then I really don't think that we would see a passing along of the effects of the curse from our first parents' disobedience. So we've been laying out our thoughts on it. We've been citing uh, Westminster Confession. We've brought up the Heidelberg. Of course, Bob Inc., because what else are we here for? That's true. What good are we? Now, what are some other thoughts, though, some other takes on this view of covenant of works? We've kind of been alluding to them, but uh, maybe we could pinpoint just how some others have thought of it. Well, as far as differing views or even objecting views, I think there are two major categories that are worth approaching. And again, we've alluded to them already. A lot of this has to do with the debates over covenant theology of the 20th century. On one side, you have Meredith Quine and his approach to the covenants that emphasizes the legal. And then on the opposite end, you have John Murray and those who followed after him and an emphasis on the covenants that is gracious. Now, I think it's become pretty clear from what we've said that we're taking the position of, well, it's both. And we can't exclude one at the sense of the other. So, for instance, the covenant of works is legal because it does put terms of obedience on Adam that he is expected to obey. And yet it's also gracious because of the disproportionality, because it's God showing unmerited favor that Adam has no inherent right to in his creation. So the issue is that in the 20th century, as these debates have come up, you have these two sides, these two camps, if you will, that tend to downplay one at the expense of the other. So the first of these is the approach of Meredith Quine and those who have followed after him. Meredith Quine teaches that the covenant of works is baked into, built into, inherent in creation, that essentially... Adam was always under covenant and that the moral law exists under covenant. That covenant is essentially the overarching controlling paradigm of all of that. Now, part of this issue with Quine's approach and as has been taken up by some of his ideological successors is this issue of merit. I alluded to it briefly earlier this idea that of work and reward being related, of them being proportionate. Historically, the Reformed have understood merit to require several things. It requires that the one doing a meritorious act must have proper standing, must be an equal to the one that he's doing the act for and to. So already we have an issue with merit from man as creature to God as creator. The work, the deed has to be proportionate to the reward. So, you know, I can't go and mow Caleb's lawn, and then because of that, I get his entire inheritance and everything he owns and all that. That would be absurd. 
Although Caleb, do you do you it need would be to, nice? Yeah. Do you need your lawn mowed? Yeah, I do. Um, you can have everything that I ever had. Okay, I'll be right yeah. there. No, we're I'm a good. 2,500 or so miles away. That's not going to happen. But anyway, so there's proportionality as another element of this. Um, there's others. This is something that Francis Turretin treated, and I think, well... Turretin. Yeah. <laughs> also, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church did a report on republication, which I'm sure we will come back to later when we get into Covenant of Grace, that talks about this taxonomy of merit. Now, basically, Meredith Quine and those who have followed after him have rejected that definition of merit and instead insist on a, you might say, simplified definition or concept of merit. So one, for instance, who's taken this up is Lee Irons. He's written a paper called Redefining Merit. So it's playing on the face what's going on here that basically... These categories of merit are not useful or helpful to this discussion. Basically, what they're doing is they're holding over a relic of medieval Roman Catholicism that God cannot or doesn't have to reward man's work. Yeah, Iron speaks of this as this remnant of medieval theology in an emphasis on volunteerism in understanding man's relationship with God. And so you have elements of how he's considering condign merit here. So he's saying that's at play in what is being left over in saying words like voluntary condescension in Westminster Confession 7. Uh, and more properly, though, he says the relationship between God and man before the fall should be seen in an intellectualist light. You know, what is the nature of the relationship between God and man on the grounds of ontology, of God and uh, man's ontology. If God is just, then he must act in accordance with his just nature in considering moral works, such as what Adam would be doing in obedience or disobedience to God. So it's reduced primarily to a legal contractual relationship between God and man on the basis simply of God having created Adam. And so then in this sense, it could be said that man really would have, that had Adam fulfilled the terms of his covenant, he would have truly and properly earned, merited, and been rewarded with eternal life, and that God had to reward him in that way. That God essentially, by creating man in covenant and creating him in his image, was obligated to give man this reward. So in other words, then, if the basis of fulfillment of the covenantal obligations for Adam is for Adam to do the work required of him, if it requires Adam to do this work, then what's the nature of the works? Can it be said that Adam would then, like use the word, uh, truly have merited his reward if God's grace, favor, or mercy were involved in any way? If God displayed his favor and love, or we could say also his grace, in voluntary condescending and having a hand in revealing himself with special revelation, revealing what is required of Adam, if God is involved in any way in a graceful or favorous manner with Adam, can Adam be said to really entirely have 
fulfilled the terms of the obligation by a pure work of his own doing? Could he have actually merited it? And the answer is no. If there's grace of any kind, even in the qualified sense we presented earlier, then no, that is not what's going on. And this leads to a certain degree of comfort with the language of Westminster 7-1 and the voluntary divine condescension and has led to calls to change it, to remove that part of the confession. And Irons argues in his essay that to do so would not be hostile to the overall system of doctrine. And we want to also be fair in a way of pointing out what some of the concern is. Because what would happen if we overemphasize, if you can, um, really, the gracious interaction between God and man in the garden? If this covenant of works is actually based in grace and favor, then what's different between the pre-fall and post-fall relationship between God and man? And that's an important consideration because this idea by Quine and those that have followed after him. It hasn't just emerged in a vacuum. It did emerge as a response to some real and significant theological concerns. So, for instance, the work of Norman Shepard and the rise of the Federal Vision Movement that is mono-covenantal, that essentially the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, there's not a distinction between them. They are one in the same covenant. And that God is dealing with people in the same way before the fall as after. The problem is, with any kind of reactionary theology, there can be a tendency to overcorrect and to go too far to the opposite pole. Yeah, we can speak more of this when we get into covenant of grace, but if there's not an actual distinction, or rather I should say a clear distinction, or even worse, if the distinction between covenant of works and covenant of grace are rejected, then you end up with a problem for post-fall man where we're still having to, in some way, work for our salvation. There's an initiation by special relation from God, and that there's a justification to cleanse us of sins, but to really maintain favor, then works have to be done. We have to earn our final salvation, essentially. Which at that point, we are essentially on the way back to Rome. If God is dealing with us in the same way now as he was dealing with Adam in the garden, where we're going to do works, and those works somehow bring us into a state of righteousness before God or bring us into holiness, then we've lost the gospel. We've lost the plot. And to their credit, I mean, that's what Quine and and others like him, that's their concern is they want to defend the gospel from this doctrine that would be very hostile to it. The problem is in doing it the way that they have, they've opened up certain other theological issues concerning the law concerning the nature of creation and so forth. Now, there are some other variations of how the covenant of works and also the relationship then with the covenant of grace is spoken of. And these don't quite fit into the clear rejection of covenant of works for a truly mono-covenant theology. For instance, one is Klaus Gilder, 
20th century Dutch theologian and pastor taught at the theological school of Kampen, where Bobbing had at one point previously taught before going to the Free University of Amsterdam. There were some concerns with how Skilder was speaking of the covenant relationship between man and God for the covenant of works and covenant of grace. And some uh, today continue to be fairly suspicious of Skilder and have, I think, in some ways played up his influence on Norman Shepard. Now, I'm not uh, exactly a Skilder expert. I'm going to refer to, though, a fairly lengthy paper I wrote on Klaus Skilder's covenant theology. But if there is someone more familiar with Skilder's works out there, I would certainly enjoy correction if I phrase something wrong. But basically, Klaus Skilder has a view of a covenant where he says, God is sovereign in the monopluric establishment of the covenant. The covenant is diploric in its existence. Humanity has a relatively independent role in responding to the demands and promises of the covenant. The covenant can be kept or broken. What's difficult here is the covenant for Skilder is first and foremost understood as coming from God. Thus, he says it is sovereign in its monopluric establishment, but then diploric in its maintaining. It's a two-way street in maintaining its existence. He's going to consider this monopluric, diploric existence as playing out also in the covenant of works. He says in one work, the covenant is a mutual agreement between God and his people established by himself, but maintained by virtue of his gracious work by himself and his people as two parties. So he emphasizes the gracious continuing or the gracious overseeing of even the two-way maintaining. So he's saying that it takes two, basically, for it to be considered a covenant relationship. However, God overall is the sovereign sole source of it. This thought that he had developed caused him to move away from using the language of the covenant of works in favor of a distinction in pre-lapsarian and uh, post-lapsarian administrations rather than two separate covenants. So in other words, he, he starts to view the covenant history as occurring in successive phases so he still maintains distinctions in periods of the covenant, but he views them more in those phases rather than as hard line distinctions, such as we would say of covenant of works and grace. He says in one lecture that the covenant has only one history. We do speak of a covenant of works and a covenant of grace as if there would be two covenants, but that is not in fact correct. God and man are in covenant from the beginning through the creating decree of God. Both before and after the fall, God initiated covenant, basically, and presented its sanctions. And Skilder does stress continuity in what God demands of God. But it's in the new phase after the fall that God has to really, 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 really supply what is required. And so what changes, he emphasizes, is not exactly man. He's not emphasizing the change between the nature of God and man's relationship, but he's focusing on Christ's role as mediator and object of faith. 
who, who would then bring sinful humanity back into fellowship in the new phase of the covenant. So in other words, he still happens to maintain the distinctions that resemble how we might speak of it in agreement with Bavink and such, but he's looking at it in a historical sense, in Historia Salutis, and then he's focusing on Christ's role of mediator, how that now looks post-fall. So that's all to say, Skilder has a, a pretty complicated way of expressing the covenant, but he does have some differences in than how Shepard speaks of it as flat out denying a covenant of works. So another theologian of the 20th century that came to a point of disagreement on the doctrine of the covenant of works was John Murray. Now, John Murray gets blamed for a lot of things that really don't have that much to do with his particular formulations. Uh, For instance, the Federal Vision Movement and some later divergent movements that veered off into some grossly unorthodox territory claim that they were doing and continuing Murray's work. But that really isn't fair to Murray. Murray's contention against the covenant of works was largely a matter of biblical terminology. He didn't like the idea of a covenant of works because the Bible never refers to it as such. So he would instead call the pre-fall situation that Adam was in the Adamic administration Because the Bible doesn't ever talk about a covenant of works, he wasn't comfortable with the terminology. Now, it's interesting that he raises an objection on the Bible never saying this, because there is at least one text where it does seem that the Bible does say this. That text is Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. That's in the ESV. Now it's really interesting and really important, I think, to this discussion that we see here that Adam transgressed a covenant because Adam transgressing a covenant requires that he was in a covenant. Now there are certain linguistic arguments that try to say that the Hebrew text here isn't talking about Adam being in a covenant, that there's other ways to nuance it. I don't find those arguments persuasive. I think this is a text here that tells us that Adam was in a covenant. But even leaving that aside for a moment, regarding John Murray, even though Murray was uncomfortable with the name Covenant of Works, if you look at how he describes this Adamic administration, it contains most of the elements and addresses most of the issues that we have in discussing the covenant of works. So he more or less affirms the doctrine even if, uh, against the confessions and such, denies the terminology. Now, I think that's a mistake. It's always a bad move, I think, for Reformed theologians to deny covenantal terminology But we do need to be clear that regarding the substance, John Murray, for the most part, is still there. He just didn't like the name. 
So that is the Covenant of Works. It's a lot there. It's complicated. If you have any questions, of course, you can always email us, reach out to us on social media. And also, too, keep listening. As we get into Covenant of Grace, we'll be coming back to some of these things and I think hopefully clarify some of them. But we thank you for tuning in to Bobcast, and we hope you enjoyed it. hope you learned something. And until next time, tote zines. Tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.